Good evening and welcome to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Simon Sandsbury. So, okay, so thank you for joining us and putting up with um, with our technical issues. Um, okay, so today's show, we have a f- essentially three questions that we wanted to pose um, and actually kind of work through. Um, and we're going to work through them uh, together because we, we, we like doing these things as a team. Um, uh, basically, those th- so those three questions are, um, is... Is the freedom that is anonymity online, is that worth the price of online abuse? The second question is, um, in light of um, attacks on MPs, in order to make them safer, um, would that make them more distant uh, and therefore keep them at arm's length from their constituents? And in which case, would... Um, does actually protecting our MPs in that way or our other elected fish officials in that way, does that diminish our democracy or defend it? And our third question will, will be, should MPs or other elected officials be allowed to take a second job? So there's kind of a bit of a theme kind of going through there as to um, as to what those sorts of things um, what those um, concerns are, um, and to um, to look at those. So if I start, um, I'm going to crack on while Ian kind of starts to um, starts to look at that uh, with regards to that. So in regards to um, regards to online anonymity, anonymity. Um, so we put this question out onto the uh, Portsmouth Politics Facebook page to actually see get some engagement from people and, s- and see what their views were on that and to see um, what ideas uh, there were. But um, but basically, um, several many many different MPs have reported concerns with um, online abuse, and indeed other public figures have, and indeed members of the public have reported uh, concerns around um, exposure to harmful online and anonymous uh, abuse. Um, so. Is that essential freedom, the ability to actually be anonymous online, to be someone other than your verified identity? Is that actually a freedom that's being abused? And is that is the is the freedom to do that worth the, the cost that um, that that actually gives? Uh, Ian, I couldn't hear you. I can't hear you. I can see you. You were talking, but I can't hear you. No. Um. So, um, so to give some sort of like background to this in regards to so looking at um, looking at abuse that um, that MPs have received um, in 2017, um, as Mina reported in the New Statesman, um, that an analysis of not over 900,000 uh, tweets over a six-month period prior to the general election that year. Um, for example, the call-outs uh, from that analysis were that Black and Asian women MPs received 35% more abuse. Um, online than um, than uh, than the white counterparts, um, and we're receiving on average fourteen abusive tweets per day. Um, Black and Asian women MPs made up eleven percent of the female MPs in Westminster at, at that time. Um, another thing that, that that data called out was that Diane Abbott, who um, who was um, at the time a MP um, for the Labour Party. Um, in the six weeks running up to the 2017 election, she received 45% of all of the abusive uh, tweets um, that they that they analysed um, over the six month period. It was just under 32%. So there's so there's some concern, obvious concerns there about uh, people receiving pati- um, particular uh, abuse, and indeed, actually, in um, in the 2019 election. There were also um, some issues with regard to uh, abuse that was w- that was being received. Um, so, uh, so to try and actually sort those things out, the government are proposing um, an online harms bill, um, and indeed there was a, a backbench. Uh, motion actually put forward and discussed in Parliament in March to discuss actually whether um, anonymity online uh, should be included into the, into the online harms bill, um, and um, uh, you know as we as we know the online harms bill is is kind of progressing. But to, to give a kind of a shape of a, of 2019, um, just to give an idea of the um, 
of the of the 2019 general election the 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 members of parliament or candidates for parliament that received the top most of abusive tweets and a similar analysis six months prior to uh, prior to that were um you know the leaders of the two two major parties um the leader of the liberal democrats but in, but in order they were boris johnson jeremy corbyn michael hancock michael gove david lammy joe swinson james cleverly jacob rees mogg sajid javid uh, and diane abbott so uh, again a massive amount of um of, of online abuse and uh, forgive me, I'll give a caveat about the swear words that accused in um, you you used in this information. And this um, this information comes from uh, some data on EPJ Data Science, um, which was um, collated uh, by um, various parties there, um, which will which will comment to in in the information when we post the uh, post the upload. But um, just to give an idea, and there is swearing here. So again, um, our apologies for calling that out. Um, but yes, the ten most used uh, uh, used terms in the six months prior to the general election in two thousand nineteen, um, basically f off, idiot, the t word, coward, idiots, scum, the the c word, moron, piss off, and wanker. So a wide, um, sadly, a, a, um, a wide range of various insults that um, were levelled at various um, different people. So again, we'll we'll include the links so that people can gonna go and actually see the the detailed argument um, there and the information. So there is obviously um, a level of abuse that's being directed at MPs and at candidates online. Um, some MPs have actually cited that as a reason for them considering stepping down, and some of them have even cited that as a reason for them to decide to change the way they vote. So in that respect, um, it's an impact on democracy. And at that point, I'm just going to pause and see whether, um, Ian, um, is your sound back in the room? I can see you, but I can't hear you. Got no sound coming through. I shall carry on while you struggle with that, if that's okay. Okay, so uh, by all means do um, hit me up with some uh, some comments in the chat, so either on YouTube or on Facebook, uh, please do those. And don't forget you can join us live every week on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube um, and catch us as uh, upload later in the evening uh, from all your favourite podcast providers. Um, you can see us there. So, um, and don't forget to join us next week in Health of the Nation, where when we will be asking um, when at a time that um, care sectors, the care sector is now mandated for uh, vaccination, and that's um, due to come in, the government are talking about bringing that in for the NHS. Um, should that be brought in in any other sectors? And if so, uh, and if so, which? Um, and bearing in mind that's at a time when the NHS are about to face um, a, a yet again a, a difficult winter, obviously struggling with the normal winter pressures and the pressures of COVID. So join us next week at 6.27 uh, when we discuss that. So um, the online harms bill. So the government are proposing to a piece of legislation um, which... Um, which um, the uh, which Nadine Doris, uh, the Culture Secretary, Secretary has um, has said will um, will basically um, end or end abuse. Full stop. Um, if it's racist, if it's misogynistic, if it's anti-Semitic, uh, if it's any kind of toxic content that breaks a social media company's terms and conditions, whether hiding behind a fake name or not, it will be removed. Um, and that. Um, that piece of legislation calls on um, the regulator Ofcom to then have the power to be able to um, to actually find companies either £18 million or 10% of their global turnover, whichever is the greater. So obviously 10% um, of a global turnover of a company like Facebook or, um, is, is a huge amount of money. Um, and the government saying that they're, um, that the basically the um, online harms bill that it aims to uh, provide a free, open and secure internet, um, freedom of expression online, an online environment where companies take effective steps to keep their users safe, where rules and norms for the internet that discourage harmful behaviour and uh, the UK is a thriving digital economy 
um, and a prosperous ecosystem for of companies developing innovation innovation in online safety and its citizens understand the risks of online activity challenge unacceptable behaviors and know how to access help if they experience harm online with children re- receiving extra protection um, specifically um, and obviously there'll be moves to um, work with other countries to uh, to get similar measures um, across the board and to, and to deliver those as many of these companies are indeed not based in the UK so um, so that's the the government trying to trying to bring into into play its its measures um, with regards um, with regards to um, protecting people online and there's a there's a couple of different ways um, to uh, to look at that there's indeed been an online petition that has reached um, uh, 700,000 um, signatures online and calling on the on the government to legislate and require that you need to provide verifiable ID so for example a passport or a driving license in order to actually set up um, an account online okay so I'm getting from the um, from the chat thanks Malcolm for, for letting us know um, so I'm getting a report that the sound um, is okay marvelous let's go from here then well thank you Simon for uh for going through the background there and also for anybody who's listening online for bearing with us through this rather tortuous period um indeed so i'll um if i can just i'll just conclude a bit so um i was just talking about the the petition that had been raised asking for um about online anonymity and i'm calling on the government to include the requirement for um for online uh, social media providers to require um, ID. Um, the government's response to that petition uh, was that um, they were concerned that restricting all users' right to anonymity by introducing compulsory user ver- verification for social media could disproportionately impact users who rely on anonymity to protect their identity. Uh, these users include young people exploring their gender or sexual identity, whistleblowers, journalists, sources, and victims of abuse introducing a new legal requirement whereby only verified users can access social media would force these users to disclose their identity and increase a risk of harm to their personal safety. Uh, And furthermore, users without ID or users who are reliant on ID from family members would experience a serious restriction of their online experience, freedom of expression and rights. And research from the Electoral Commission suggests that there are three and a half million people in the UK who do not currently have access to valid photo ID. And the source for that is from the petition.parliament.uk website. Yeah, and I I think I struggle with that one, though, Simon, to be honest, because there is an element of... You know, ultimately, the the requirement for having for you to have a valid identity, um, for for me, that doesn't necessarily affect the identity with which you present with. So there is an element of of you know whilst you know whilst there is you know there is a valid you know issue there around potential digital exclusion. Surely the fact of you know, if you have to have valid identity to, you know, to get onto the onto those platforms, that can remain masked and is only there as a point of reference should you be involved in any wrongdoing, online abuse or, you know, threatening behaviour. And that's the bit that I, I struggled with. And I read that piece when you sent it over earlier. Um, you know, it, it's an element of at the moment, you know, anyone can set up a dozen sock puppet accounts and they do in seconds and start abusing people. And, you know, provided they're masking their Internet, you know, their, their, their I, whatever the number's called, um, they can do that with complete freedom and abandon. So, um, indeed, and, in, and I mean, the question that we've posed kind of see, it sets up a... A binary answer doesn't it it sets up either either um online anonymity is a is a you know is a, is a good or a um worth the worth the cost for um rather than rather than specifically a good or it's or it's overall a, a bad thing but indeed in impossible solutions there were um there was some there was some debate in the the facebook groups that we posted um the question to with regards to um, potential ways that you you could solve that so you could go you could go as far as the China route where you're required to actually use visual ID and indeed facial recognition in order to gain access to the internet or mobile services. 
um, and you could require um, the internet companies, for example, to keep that as secure as as bank accounts and bank company banks are meant to keep um, bank accounts um, secure. So there, obviously, there are concerns about that information being hacked and, be- and becoming public. Um, but you could also um, you could also do other things. Um, so, um, but if you had that sort of level of measure, at what point? Do you say that a judge is able, for example, to in, um, instruct the internet company or the social media company to with um, to release that person's identity? Um, and there you start getting into sticky situations of very quickly you'll have situations where um, a whistleblower is um, someone that's actually sharing information that needs to be made public. Whereas a government would probably quite quickly find a way to define that as an issue for national security or for other things. So it kind of opens up a a whole storm of where do you draw the line and who watches the watchers kind of in that sort of way. Um, But um, Siobhan uh, Bailey, who who was the Conservative MP that led the uh, led the backbench motion in March, actually called for a different solution. Her solution was that. um, basically require internet companies and social media companies to allow people to voluntarily declare their verif- to voluntarily verify their identity uh, but then also set their accounts to block um, being viewed and commented by people who didn't verify their identities so they could therefore deliberately choose not to receive comment um, or posts from people whose whose identities were masked or were um, you know were pseudonyms. So in, in that respect, that you know that kind of gives a, a, a different uh, a different kind of way to do it. And, in, and indeed, in her in her debate, she said, uh, "No one should face the abuse and horror that you will hear about um, from the for the victims of online harm. The abuse is not virtual. It does not stay in cyberspace. It impacts the real lives of real people in the in the real world. If we fail to properly to investigate the impact or and options surrounding um, anonymity, I fear we will render any forthcoming legislation and change, no matter how good it is, out of touch and out of date before the ink is dry. Um, so." You know, there were there were views to the other side. Um, in fact, um, former Labour MP uh, Ruth uh, Smith, who is the head of Index on Censorship, um, said uh, we have to do something to tackle and improve our online culture. But a knee-jerk response to ban anonymous accounts will have unintended consequences, not just on our collective free speech, but on our ability to engage with whistleblowers and dissidents in every corner of the world. And I guess that kind of speaks to if we require social media companies to put in the any particular sorts of measures, there will be other countries that will use those particular measures for nefarious means. There, you know, the, and when you look back in um, history and you look at the, the sorts of uh, controls that the Chinese government has over access to the Internet or indeed, actually, was it the Saudi government requiring uh, back in the day BlackBerry when they were a thing that BlackBerry Messenger, because at the time, I think that was the only encrypted messenger service that they required, uh, basically the encryption keys from uh, from BlackBerry in order to allow that uh, users to use that service in, in their country. So I guess... If we're trying to find a way that we, because we need to stop this online harm, we need to stop um, the faceless abuse. Is the is the anonymous is the abuse actually predominantly anonymous, and it, and is actually making banning it outright, uh, you know, a, a sledgehammer to to crack a very 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 large um, nut. Um, but the, it seems to be honest that the that the suggestion by Siobhan Bailey actually that yeah, I, I think there's some merit in that as a as a way of providing safety for those that want it and isolation for those that want it from people that pretend to be someone other than, you know, them, but depend, pretend not, you know, don't have actually their real verified data. So that might be a way forward. Um, yeah, but I think it, it, it becomes a muddled halfway house then, doesn't it? Because, you know, there's an element of, you know, if you are a public figure and you want to protect yourself from online abuse, so you set your, you set your kind of settings that say, well, I, I want to see, I only want to see content that comes from those that have passed some kind of UK-based validation step. Well, that that sounds like a UK-centric solution. So 
you know potentially will limit your exposure to to international more diverse arrangements or potentially you get forums where you know you're only going to see half the comments because half of the comments are from people who have no nefarious intent but have the libertarian i i you know i i'm not prepared to disclose my my identity to quote unquote the state or a vassal of the state that would share my true identity yes but banning anonymity outright would force them to do that anyway well, it depends doesn't it and i think it's that element and I, you touched on it earlier with the you know who watches the watchers um there is an element of you know you have a you have bank details your bank details are your own you have to prove that you are a bona fide to get a bank account um but your bank account details are not shared unless there is a reasonable suspicion that you have been using your bank account for nefarious activity and you know the subtleties of where that's drawn in law um you know we we have that in place for financial transactions which should and and, and obviously remain private so it, it doesn't strike me as beyond the wit of man that we couldn't replicate that for the online identity issue um perhaps uh, i mean indeed the other the other kind of i guess part of the equation is that um social media companies see themselves as not being publishers and normally if if someone actually publishes something um they have to actually you know they, they normally have to actually say who the publisher is so that mm. if there's some if there's an issue with it um to be blunt then someone knows who to sue um so um if someone was to um anonymously daub some something insulting on the side of a house for example um the per the person that owns that house isn't responsible for what's been written um but they would probably quite quickly want to actually cover that up because they don't want something you know so distasteful actually sitting on the side of their house it doesn't make their house look very good but from a point mm. of view of are they responsible for the harm that was put on the side of their house no but they are responsible for making sure that further people don't get to see it would you in order to stop people being able to paint things on the side of people's houses restrict the sale of spray paint or um instill a curfew no i don't think we would no and i think that you know there is that element of of the duty of care of the social media companies and and it's something that they've they've skirted around and muddied the waters on for a number of years now but I guess the, the, the piece for me, which is where the, they can't be held responsible, it is, you know, the, the fact that, it, and again, it was the headline in the Portsmouth News this, this week, that pupils at a, a, um, a college in Horndean had posted on TikTok that, frankly, they would rather the, the head teacher was dead and that it would be appropriate to gouge her eyes out um now even once that's taken down that threat and the ghastly language and the horror that i'm sure that has caused won't be undone just by deleting that post um you know in, the, in that story very fortunately you know there has been a they found the the people responsible and it was you know again they have a restorative justice program where they they discussed it openly and the you know the the excuse for posting that was well i just wanted to get more attention and likes um which again beggars belief but you know it's the reality of how some people think it's okay to behave online because they see what they're doing as a victimless crime and it's that piece for me where somebody who has behaved like that or or worse i genuinely believe there has to be a route back to trace the true identity of the person who's making such vile threats indeed um i don't think i don't think anybody's calling for people to be able to continue to um, make offensive comments um with impunity i, I think the 64 million dollar question is 
how do you stop it without there being unintended consequences that you wouldn't want in a, in a free and fair democratic society? Um, it was interesting that, um, you know, um, some reports elsewhere that um, of um, of the of the instructions given to moderators on on Facebook that, um, you know, that particular things weren't considered um, and they were things that were you know were calling for um, attacks on MPs for example that they weren't considered actually um, hateful speech and, and shouldn't be removed when obviously quite clearly um, to, I think to be honest to you and me and any other sensible person yep. that they are um, and they and that they should be removed and in fact even if they didn't think that I'd kind of question that you know maybe providers such as Facebook should be questioning whether they want their platform to be connected with that sort of language and that sort of anger um, and, and attack, and it's just you know it's just wrong. You you um, you did some analysis earlier on the early hours of a couple of posts on on Facebook today. Um, should, we, yeah. should we talk through that? Yeah. So yeah. So again, it was just a it was a very simple piece where I, I looked at um, the Facebook accounts of Sir Keir Starmer and of Boris Johnson. Um, and picked just a couple of um, their Facebook posts at random. You know, Boris Johnson, a very positive and, and sort of, I'm travelling by train in the north and the Midlands and follow my progress live online. And uh, one from Keir Starmer that was more critical, who basically said, you know, alluded to HS2 and the government's announcement and was more critical. So I sort of flicked back through the, the, the I think it was the last 50 sort of comments that have been made on there um and you know very interested to see whether people were sort of disagreeing nicely or agreeing nicely um and whether there was you know whether there was actually you know whether people had got abusive in terms of their response um and i think because obviously i'm you're sharing the uh, a slide on screen now that's got some of that detail in it Simon. Yes, I, I am indeed. I realise I've left the wrong title on the on the on the, um, on the graphic there. So apologies for any confusion. But yes, yeah, so this was an analysis of about of about fifty comments on each of the posts that were made both by um, the Prime Minister or Keir Starmer's uh, and Keir Starmer's accounts. So uh, analysis of fifty comments on each. But these were both posts actually made today. Um, so um, so looking at the. You know, looking at that, fifty percent of them on on Keir Starmer's and seventy six percent of them on Boris Johnson's post uh, were either agreeing or disagreeing nicely. So they were they were they were playing nice. They were they were being good yeah. net netizens, as as, as it were. Um, uh, but twenty four percent of the comments on Keir's post and fourteen on um, on the PM's post were specific insults towards Boris Johnson or Tories in general. And and again, these were these were kind of not commenting on the topic, and and they were a range of, you know, there were a range of kind of, again, abusive or insulting. It's you know things like, well, what do you expect? All Tories are criminals and thieves. Um, you know, well, you know, it, it was sort of, you know, there, there was there were very few that made your eyebrows raise in terms of actually that's really not appropriate so it was just the general kind of what i would say you know we talked about it before that sort of cartoon demonization of the people mm. who aren't you um you know so so you i guess you would expect there to be more anti-tory feeling on those that had um that followed Keir Starmer, um but there was still quite a significant chunk of people that followed boris um who you know, were were pretty um, derisory in their in their approach. I think for me, the one that was what probably stood out as you know most offensive was that you know it said that Boris is getting away with it like Jimmy Savile, and you just want what he's got, which I was on um, Kia's thread, which I looked at and thought, well, that is really really distasteful, and um, you know, again, there there is there's no excuse for that. No, um, indeed, and the and kind of the the next um, thing that you um, that you you pointed out was that um, was that fourteen percent on Keir's post and six percent on uh, Boris Johnson's post were challenges to the poster's leadership. Yeah, so these were kind of attacks on the leader, and it was interesting that I would say, 
you know, they were all from the extremes wings of their own parties. So in Sakia's um, in Sakia's sort of space, it was basically that he's not really Labour. He's a Tory in disguise, and Jeremy Corbyn would have been so much better. And you've failed the party by etc etc and the three that were on boris's comments were all the same that were effectively that your government's not doing enough to crack down on those trying to cross the channel um in various degrees of colorful language um so it would appear that it you know again the the interestingly in this case it wasn't the the quote other team um poking at the leaders it was the uh it was their own side but um the 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 more extreme edges of them. Yeah, and and um, what was what's also interesting was that um, on the on the post by Keir Starmer, six percent of them were commenting on Boris Johnson not wearing a face mask, and four percent of them were insulting to Keir Starmer or Labour. But neither of those things were covered at all on the on the posts from the PM. Mm. And and it's difficult because you know again fifty sounds like a reasonable number of comments when there were nearly two hundred on Kia's and over a thousand on Boris's. I'm sure they're you know they're, again it's a representative sample, um, but also there's an element of what what you know I don't know is whether on both posts there have been more extreme comments that have been you know moderated or deleted before you know, before I got to them. So, so, uh, yeah, I mm. think as a, as a very much a straw poll, I think it is that element of, it, I guess it shows what we've, what we've seen on a number of these, which is that it's almost a sliding scale where, you know, there is a bit of negativity through to some sort of general name calling to some stuff that then becomes either very personal or very sinister. Um, indeed, and as um, as some of the MPs and indeed um, Siobhan uh, Bailey said in, in her speech, those things don't, you know, sometimes sadly that, and horrifically, those things don't stay online. Uh, and mm. that probably takes us actually to our um, to our next point, which was about MP safety um, or about yep. the safety of our, of our elected officials. Um, now, um, you know, if we look if we look just to give us an idea about um, obviously, obviously, I'm sure um, everybody's aware of um you know, sadly, the the recent murder attack on uh, on Sir David Amos. But when you look at actually at, um, attacks since the beginning of this century, um, in 2016, um, of course, sadly there was the um, there was the murder of Joe Cox. Um, but in 2010, uh, Stephen Timms uh, was stabbed twice in the stomach at his East East London uh, constituency surgery. Um, and um, sorry, at the because he was the um, um, Sorry, his aide was. Um, uh, sorry, I beg your pardon. Sorry. Um, yes, sorry, I beg your pardon. I'm getting confused there. So in in 2000, um, Andrew Pennington, who is the aide of Nigel Jones MP, was stabbed to death uh, by a samurai sword wielding attacker um, during their attack, in in which Nigel Jones was was also injured. So in in the case of, you know, if you think of any working environment of 650 people. Over the space of you know twenty one years, um, there's you know there's there's two fatalities of of um, of MPs. There's two um, you know severe injuries of MPs, uh, and uh, and actually of a murder of of actually one of their one of their assistants. So you know in any other workplace, you know health and safety would be crying out to say quite rightly, hang on, what the hell is going on, and what's being done to to keep people safe. Um, and there was some conversation um, shortly after um, Sir, Sir David Amos's um, murder that what could be done to keep MPs safer, and that kind of ranges from the questions of to keep them safer. Do you do you, do they hold their surgery, their constituency surgeries in? Um, specific public buildings that have been equipped to actually keep them safer or buildings that have got um, security scanners or have actually security staff? Do you start to require people visiting them to book in advance and have uh, background checks actually completed in advance? Um, and those are the sorts of things that um, that people that were talked about as, you know, from a security perspective um, as to the sorts of things that you could do. But what was interesting is considering 
actually the abuse that we talked about previously uh, and obviously these horrific attacks that this isn't these aren't the sorts of things that actually MPs or other elected officials are actually calling for um but it is a is a you know when you think at a more local level you know local councillors might be on their own in a church hall or a community center uh, you know just a lone councillor actually there dealing with uh, dealing with queries from the public mm. um and for them it's an important thing that actually any member of um of their um of their community can actually come in and speak to them if they need to um yeah absolutely so mp surgeries are much the same aren't they there is a mm -hmm. You know, it, it is a great tradition of, of British democracy that, you know, there are there are those kind of open surgeries where, you know, you can you can, you know, rock up and chat to your your nominated um, member of parliament. And I think and this is this one is one of those real conundrums, because, as you say, if you look at it statistically, um, you know, the. the 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 level is 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 terrifying um but i guess it's that it, it's that piece that then talks to you know how from a from a safety and and from a from a security perspective do you deal with the lone wolf attacker um you know and, and we've seen them you know the, the last weekend there was you know that potential bomb incident at liverpool where thankfully you know no one, you know, other than the other than the attacker lost their life, and the very brave taxi driver was suffered minor injuries. But only by his quick thinking, it sounds like there were, you know, there were significant numbers of of people that would be harmed. And I think this is where, in terms of there being a tension between democracy and terrorism, it, it's how much do you change the way in which we live our normal lives to try and guard against the threat of the lone wolf um it, it, indeed um and um it, it, it is it is indeed a, a conundrum and um sadly um sir david amos himself actually said um said these increasing attacks have rather spoiled the great british tradition of the people openly meeting their elected politicians we all make ourselves readily available to our constituents and are often dealing with members of the public who have mental health problems. It could happen to any of us. Um, and it's, that's scarily for, foretelling, isn't it? Um, and um, a police uh, review of uh, crimes against, of reported crimes against MPs between 2016 and 2020 um, said that there were 678 um, crimes reported, but that they suspected that there were a great deal that weren't reported. Um, and at the same time, from a perspective of providing the right sort of um, the right sort of equipment to uh, to allow MPs and um, to keep themselves and their uh, and their staff safe, um, there were concerns reported. Um, the concerns reported uh, by Orbi um, Allegretti in the um, in the Guardian, where um, where they'd actually spoken to some MPs and they'd actually raised concerns that either they were waiting up to ten months to uh, to get um, safety equipment fitted to their home uh, from the contractor um, employed to do that, or that they were waiting, um, or that that contractor cited delays in getting the budget signed off uh, by Ipso, um, Ipso, which is the um, the independent parliamentary standards um, office, but also um, concerns that those that did have individual um, panic alarms, um, so you know the the basically the you know the the lone uh, loan support device that when they'd actually been triggered accidentally or indeed as a test um, that they didn't receive any contact to actually make sure that they were okay which is what's meant to happen in, in those sorts of situations so th so the concern is that even though there are there are steps to provide equipment to um, to try to help keep MPs um, and their staff safer um, and their families safer that they're finding it difficult to get that uh, and for it to work when they do so there's there's a, i think there's a there's a competency question perhaps about actually what is a, what is currently um, being arranged but also from a wider point it seems that there isn't a desire for to lock as it were mps away and i think most of them would actually be quite horrified by that prospect they value that connection mm. with their constituents and indeed um you know so the um any representatives in, in other levels of, of government
So in in that respect, you know, it, the knee jerk of of the you know putting them in more secure locations is perhaps not is not the desired way forward. But um, but we need to do something. You know, something needs to be done to to keep those representatives safe. And when you look at when you look at when we're trying to encourage representatives of every level to be more diverse and um, reflective of the type of society that we live in seeing how dangerous it is being an elected official or seeing how much abuse even being a candidate um, can put one in for um, and you know th that can be leveled at, at you know at your family or at your friends or your work colleagues um, you know all of those sorts of things can only put people off of wanting to get involved in politics of any level and and that is a poor thing for our society as a whole and for our democracy um, for me Simon, i think it's important that we we actually link the two because i, I think that one is a continuum of the other uh, and i think there is an element of of i think there is the the and again, it's troubled me for some time that there is almost a dehumanization of politicians you know, there's a labelling of they are a this or they are a that or, you know, Tories are scum. And, and, and you, you kind of, they, these are human beings. And whilst, you know, we might not agree with their politics, whilst we might not agree with the way they conduct themselves in public office, that for me is about an individual. Uh, and, and, you know, criticism should be levelled objectively and fairly. It, for me, it's the language of hatred and the language of aggression that, you know, I've said it many times before, we would not tolerate that against any other identifiable group in society, perhaps with the exception of a rival football club. And I, I think there is this element of, you know, ultimately, if you know, if we want to ins absolutely ensure MP safety and to guarantee it, you know, then you are into the kind of security that surrounds the Prime Minister or one of the significant royals. You know, if you look at the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister does not go anywhere with a full 20 without a full 24-7 security detail that you know, watches his every move. Indeed, sadly, um, as time's gone on, it, it seems that the risk to um, high-profile figures has grown, um, but it also seems that the risk to public figures further down the the, the pecking order is, is also um, greatly increased. Um, as you you know, as you say that you know, sadly, these you know these lone wolf attacks um, and, and things like that. Um, that are, you know, probably exceedingly difficult, if not next to impossible, for security services to um, to look for. But again, that kind of also speaks to our kind of previous point about the sorts of harms that are um, that are encouraged um, or indeed educated for um, online, um, and what can be done to make sure that people can't radicalize themselves or can't you know learn those things and there are there are existing protections that kind of stop those th those things but it seems that are are very very connected 24 7 instant response lives um the law hasn't caught up with them yet and the powers that the police has to to use to you know to do that hasn't caught up with that but at the same time you know you legislate at haste and regret it in in leisure and um yeah. you know it's a it's a very very it's a very tricky thing to to um to uh, to try to get right. Um, so yeah, and I I think it's an area where there, there has been progress made. You know, if you look um, if you look at the the approach the police now take, um, you know, to hate crimes and racially aggravated or racially motivated attacks, I think that they when they happen in quite a physical life, there is there is a more robust response than there's ever been but i think there is an element of those kind of verbal attacks that happen online and you touched on it in your earlier piece while i was throwing my home office you know the fact that asian and black female mps are targeted disproportionately is a reflection on the fact that those thoughts and those 
attitudes are sadly still prevalent in society. Now, people couldn't shout, you know, now couldn't shout them in the street without facing some kind of fairly serious action. But it would seem that they they still believe it's okay to shout them online, um, you know, no matter how aggressive that might be. Um, it, 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 indeed, and that's you know that again that's almost how our society and our cultural norms haven't caught have, you know haven't moved with what's technologically um uh, available but you know at the end at the end of the day you know public you know public sensibility has to kind of remain at a place where we need to you know for me we need to reclaim the ability to disagree politely um and to disagree nicely and you know that's that's kind of like their ever-arching hope but sadly there are some people that are out with of the ability to do that and whether that will be for the very various reasons or whether that will be um for, you know for you know for medical reasons e even you know at the end of the day um there need to be there needs to be something in place to um to protect that and indeed actually to to stop even you know online algorithms actually continually putting similar sorts of things in front of them so that they're not steadily actually finding themselves that you know a an extremist viewpoint being validated by the sorts of things that turn up on their youtube feed or indeed turn up on on, on their facebook feed so uh, yeah i think we've i think we've got to that so we um should we um touch on the the last point which is about the question about second jobs so um yeah monitor time is um is is somewhat bereft as i am a, as i am so how are we doing holistically? um so we're um we're at 23 minutes past but i wondered whether we could do a quick um do a quick kind of 10 minutes on it yeah of course we can so yeah so the question and again it's been live in Parliament this week about should mps have um be able to have second jobs lobbying potentially um using their parliamentary privilege um, so the question, I guess, is where do you draw the line? Obviously, um, we had the rather unsavoury affair. Um, I've forgotten the man's name. I tried to blot him from my... Owen Patterson. Um, no, Mr. Patterson. Um, I hope Mr. Patterson. Um, so Mr. Patterson, obviously, um, was found to have you know, been lobbying and using his parliamentary privilege to gain access for clients who are paying him a very decent um, additional salary. Um, he has now resigned, triggering a by-election. So I guess it has then, you know, there was then the debacle of the Prime Minister trying to change the rules and twisting the arms of 248 MPs to vote um, to change the rules, potentially to protect him. That fell flat on its face a day later, as I think the optics of that were obvious to everyone and so a debate started in parliament this week about um whether you know to try and restrict the amount of additional work that mps do above and beyond so so i guess kind of the i mean we spoke earlier on about unintended consequences for um you know uh, measures that could uh, could deal with online anonymity for example but the unintended consequence of banning second jobs outright would be that um, would that severely limit the sort of people that ended up being um, political candidates and indeed ended up being elected um, to parliament? Would that mean that the sorts of people that are, so for example, there are sitting MPs that are doctors, that are nurses, yep. that are practicing lawyers? Um, would you, wouldn't you still, wouldn't you, wouldn't they, aren't they actually a benefit? to the house and to the wider debate that goes on um, in the house of commons uh, because of their background and because of their background they need to keep their toe in as it as it were to keep up their yep. um, certification and relevancy of, of those skills so um, by banning second jobs outright um, you may well actually then actually you know make being an mp the purview of people that already have already have money um, and actually can can manage quite well um, without you know without their existing uh, job for for five or ten years or, or whatever how long um, someone ends up actually um, serving as an MP for um, there you know there are existing rules about um, about what's uh, what's allowed from a from a level of employer so I guess the fundamental part of the question kind of comes down to do you go for an outright ban 
Or do you allow certain occupations or do you limit the amount of time um, that can be spent in those things? So, for example, um, if you ban them as being paid jobs, would you then be requiring the, that lawyer that needs to keep up their certification or that doctor or nurse that needs to keep up their um, their training and skills to be to remain relevant? Would you then be asking them to do whatever's required in that field to do, you know, 10, 15 hours a month um, unpaid um, in order in order to do that? Would that put people off? Perhaps. Um, or, you know, do, so do you how do you restrict it? Do you have an outright ban? Do you restrict certain professions? Um, because acting as a consultant for certain companies, especially companies um, that act in sectors um, where legislation is being discussed um, and if you're in a position where you can you, you know you can um, bend the ear of the government as it were um, in order to help um, get that that company's kind of view across we've seen the the, the accusations um, uh, uh, about access to uh, MPs or indeed secretaries of state with regard to you know things like the um, the Aquin project locally all those sorts of things Yep. How do how do you how do you do that? Where because I think what everybody wants to have is is a parliament where we know that MPs are operating with being an MP is their primary focus. It's not their second job; it's their primary focus. But we also surely want MPs to be people that reflect the society that they serve, but also come to it with experience from outside of politics that they aren't basically career career politicians and maybe insisting on no second jobs would would mean that more of them are career politicians yeah i think i mean ultimately for me the the optics of it, uh, it, it it's it's one of these strange ones when you try and write the rules and write the laws it's going to be very difficult to do but it's almost the case of you know what's you, you can see what's right and what's wrong isn't it you know if, if at the end of the day you know uh, uh, a parliamentary lobbying group that is acting on behalf of a number of clients are paying you a hundred thousand pounds a year as a retainer for two hours a month then that doesn't look right does it because you know at the end of the day that these people aren't um you know their altruism isn't necessarily paying you you know that amount of money you know they're paying you ten thousand pounds an hour um to 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 keep you sweet and it's not necessarily about you know the the money per se because you know highly paid barristers you know barristers command a massive hourly rate and um so again you can look at that those earnings and think well they're colossal but that, that's just what barristers earn so yeah i think it is it is proportionate and um you know i did a bit of digging to see um what are two local mps whether they were um whether they were um you know what their register of interests were so um um, and I think it's good news for both of our local MPs, really. Uh, yeah, so I've just put up on screen the, um, the 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 information that you sourced from the theyworkworkforyou.com uh, website, um, where our two local MPs, Stephen Morgan for Portsmouth South and, and Penny um, Morden, um, and I just realised on my slide I've misspelled uh, Penny's surname, so my apologies, Penny, um, that, um, that although... Um, Penny hasn't had it. hadn't had a um, second job since um, um, since two thousand and twenty. Um, the only second job that that Stephen had had was actually as a as an existingly serving councillor on Portsmouth City Council, um, and he'd actually donated that allowance uh, to charitable organisations. Um, yeah, it's char you... charitable and voluntary. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I, I'm still not sure how I kind of feel about that. If I'm honest, there's an element of. You know, and yes, it's probably it is much better than him just pocketing it. But there's also an element of me of you are taking twenty thousand pounds over the course of eighteen months from the public purse, and then using it to become your own personal philanthropist to give it away to those people and organisations that you see fit. So, I'm I'm I'm. I'm still not con I'm still not convinced that to to take it and give it away it is as is as noble as not taking it at all. But I don't think you have an option to not take it. That's the point. Yeah, well, I guess it's that question, isn't it? It's that second job question, which mm. is if you were, if your role is a full time member of Parliament for Portsmouth South, 
can you do that and also um, act as a ward councillor for the Charles Dickens ward effectively? Um, and I guess that um, that Stephen obviously felt he could and um, did that until this May where he stepped away. Well, I mean, indeed, at the end of the day, you know, that's a question for the people of Charles Dickens Ward um, in, in relation to, you know, him being a councillor, but in yeah. relation to obviously him being an MP, the, the people of Portsmouth South um, returned him with a resounding increase in, in his majority um, in 2019. So you know they they can't seem to obviously had of any any grumbles um with regards to that but you know again that's a further question of you know if we you know if you have an outright ban on second job a second job would also include being a councillor uh, you know so, so yeah you know. if we if if we look at the other data um penny has had two gifts from um two corporate gifts one of two thousand pounds from a holding company in Fareham one of £10,000 from a consultancy in London. Um, and then I think she had had one personal contribution um, from a Sir Michael... I'm doing this all from memory. Um, so effectively it had £15,000 in, in, if you like, contributions that uh, have been declared. Um, and I have to say, I'm surprised because if you would have asked me before I did this piece of research, I would have expected um, Penny Morden as a Conservative to have more money in from business um, and other sources. Whereas, in fact, Stephen had a benefit in kind of 6600 from a satellite company to go to Denver and Florida to look at go and see NASA and watch a satellite launch um, and then it received just over 10 and a bit thousand pounds from three different unions um, one of which was cited as to be able to print leaflets so it was about 10,000 um, pounds in total um, and then it had two individuals who made private donations to him so ultimately if you compare like for like um, even if we discount the 20,000 that had come in via the the role his role as a local councillor um it was just 20,000 pounds over 18 months uh, yeah so um you know obviously our our two MPs on um perhaps examples of the of the concern that um that that's being raised kind of that's being raised nationally um, i'm sure if we picked perhaps some other mps we might might find some some diff, um some differing results but I, I guess it speaks to the larger question of um who who does your mp work for do they do they work for their constituents and, you know is that their primary focus of their time and if it's not the primary focus of their time you know what what are what are they doing and who and who has the primary focus of their time and basically who has their ear because you know because they've got you know you know they're, they're on their payroll so again speaks to the wider question do we want to ban second jobs outright or do we want to have a more measured uh, response that um, restricts um, you know consultancies or restricts uh, particular kind of lobbying organizations or restricts it by the amount of time but at the end of the day I think any sensible legislation that responds to this has got to take those things into account. Otherwise, we just end up with a parliament that's just full of career politicians. And that's the last thing we need. Absolutely. It feels like with the pendulum swung too far in terms of the, the, the lobbying, it needs to swing back towards the more centre. But what we, as you say, what we don't want to do is create a an environment where only career politicians thrive and that variety of life experiences lost or the only people that stand for parliament are those who already um, have a private income through family wealth and we are we are an even less diverse parliament than we are today indeed and that so seems like a good place to, indeed, to end in it. summary i guess i need to say a massive thank you to nikki morris my wife your sister um for salvaging this evening's uh podcast with uh, various technical solutions and you've been listening to the pompey politics podcast i've been ian tiny morris 
And I've been Simon Sansbury. Join us next week uh, when we'll be asking about the health of the nation and asking with it now being mandatory to have vaccinations in the care home settings uh, and that being brought in in the NHS. Should that be brought into any other sectors? And if so, uh, which ones? Join us next week at 6.27 when hopefully we'll have um, kicked the technical gremlins into touch. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. If you want to make sure you get notifications about upcoming shows and get to know when we're live, we normally broadcast live 6.27pm on a Sunday evening, then follow us on Facebook at Pompey Politics Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Pompey Politics One. Please, if you'd like to, feel free to leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can even ask Alexa to play the podcast for you. Alexa. Play the latest episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. Getting Pompey Politics Podcast from Amazon Music. Alexa, the latest episode. stop. See? It's easy. <laughs>